0: Welcome to Grey Matter with Michael Krasny. In this episode of our weekly podcast, we meet a legend, and I use that word advisedly because I once introduced Kirk Douglas as a legend, and he got very steamed at me and said, Legends are dead, but we have a living legend with us. I also think the word has become too hyperbolic. Uh, When I retired from radio, I was described constantly as a legend, and I really recoiled at the word because it seemed totally inflated, and that's not faux humility. But we have a living legend with us, and that's Walter Murch. He's also a polymath, a rare intellect, and uh, as David Thompson, the film historian said, a scholar and a gentleman. Most known, I suppose, for being a film editor and a pioneer sound designer, a writer and director, Walter Murch has been nominated nine times for Academy Awards, won three, two for The English Patient for Editing and Sound, and also one for Sound for Apocalypse Now. He also worked on an extraordinary range of films, including THX 1138, which he co-wrote with George Lucas, American Graffiti, The Conversation, Ghost, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Return to Oz, Cold Mountain, all three Godfathers, and the documentary Coup 53, which is a film about the CIA M16 1953 coup in Iran, which installed the Shah and his savak torturers and killers. Walter is also the author of a book on film editing, a much revered book titled In the Blink of an Eye, and I warmly welcome the much celebrated and legendary Walter Murch.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's good to be here.
0: Good to have you, and uh, let's talk first about your roots. I mentioned THX 1138, which you did with Lucas, and The Rain People was early on with Coppola. Those were right. kind of the two major figures that got you in the industry. Does that yeah. go back to USC film school
1: yeah, uh, Francis was at UCLA, which was the rival school across town. George and I were at USC. That's where I met George, and um, the the two of us were up for, as finalists for something then called the Warner Brothers Scholarship, and uh, we were waiting outside to be the, for the final grilling, and we said, "Well, one of us is going to win it." um, let's make a pact now, kind of Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer pact, uh, whoever wins, if something good happens about it, then maybe turn around and help the other guy. Well, George, of course, won it. And uh, he wanted to be an animator at that time. And he arrived on the lot at Warner Brothers the day that they pulled the plug on the animation department. <laughs>
0: Wasn't he a car mechanic in Modesto? Though uh, he
1: was, he wanted to be a racer. Uh, 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 Formula One racer was his it was his teenage dream, um, but uh, animation and film got him uh, instead. Thank God. And uh, he started wandering around the lot at Warner Brothers, and there was only one film shooting there at the time, and it turned out that the guy who was issuing the commands, uh, had a beard, just like George had a beard. And so he sidled up to this guy who turned out to be Francis Coppola. And one thing led to another and, um, they, uh, worked together on the rain people, which was an independent film that, uh, it was a film that Francis had uh, written the screenplay for, and he he convinced Warner Brothers to make it, even though it was not really their style. And uh, d- during that cross country trip of of making the film, uh, Francis said, "Well, George, why don't you direct something?" And George had won a prize for this film, THX eleven thirty eight. 4-E-B. It had a, an extra little few uh, syllables for it. And it turned out that Matthew Robbins and I had written the screenplay for that student film, intending to make it ourselves. Uh, but uh, we got interested in something else. And George said, whatever happened to that underground film that you were, well, we're, we're, we're doing this other thing. And he said, well, give it to me. So he took it and made something much more wonderful out of it than we ever would. And uh, so he then invited me to—George invited me to work with him on the screenplay of that, and uh, as well as doing the soundtrack.
0: So from those uh, rather humble beginnings, three Oscars came and nine (laughs) nominations, as I said. By the way, did you see this year's Slapless Oscars? you watch the Academy Awards?
1: I, d- I did. Uh, I watched it uh, on a delay. Didn't watch it live,
0: and still put stock in it. Or uh,
1: you know, it's a show. It's it's a it's a cultural pillar of 20th century America. So you kind of have to watch it. It's um, you know, it's a somebody has to win uh, because it's show business. Um, but it's really absurd that. Anybody wins. Uh, the fact that you you get five or ten films nominated is it, that should be enough. Because, but uh, it isn't because it uh, it's a race, and so somebody has to win, and you get the results that you get. Still but, feels
0: good when you go up and get that
1: glory, though, doesn't no, it? No, I don't know. I, I've enjoyed it much more when I was nominated and I didn't win. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's just when you win, there's kind of a target on your back, and there's the what's known as the Oscar curse, which is you you win an Oscar, and then you don't work for three years afterwards.
0: I was going to ask you, though, about—and uh, I'm really glad to get that history. I think of you as a film historian in many ways, but in terms of your own career, whose shoulders you stand on? I mean, and who have been the main influences? Your father was a painter, and he has that wonderful name, Walter Tandy Merch. Right. Right. As a literature scholar, I know a lot of trivial things like Tandy is a name and Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, yes. a character. Uh, you knew that, I bet, didn't right. you? Um, but your dad did some really interesting work and did some work that's memorable and enduring. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I grew up, uh, his, his studio was in the apartment. We lived on Riverside Drive in New York. And, <clears throat> you know, he would say in the morning, well, I have to go to work now. And he would disappear into what used to be the dining room, which he had walled off. And that was just that was life. Um, and I I must have absorbed something from that, not only about the art, but about the precariousness of the freelance life, which is, as it turns out, the life that I have also lived. And uh, I remember once uh, he he was asleep, he'd been working all night and he was asleep on the sofa. And uh, he suddenly started shouting in his sleep. There was some nightmare, and that startled me because I hadn't heard anything like that before. And my mother came in and saw what was going on, and she said, uh, she took me outside and said, you know, um, your father is doing exactly what he loves to do. And not many people in the world get to do the thing that they really like to do. but. Sometimes there are struggles with, with what he does. So, that you know, I, I took away two things from that. Well, one of them is the, the nightmares that come along with the freelance life, but also the fact that you are blessed, um, if you're lucky, to do the thing that you really enjoy doing. And that's certainly been true in my case.
0: Also makes me think of Rilke's uh, wonderful line about my devils are my angels, which many yes. artists can say. Uh, right. Uh, And let's talk a bit about (coughs) creativity, because I saw the recent uh, conversations you did out of Johannesburg. I know you just came back in February from Johannesburg. It's a nine-part series in the studio?
1: Yes, this is with William Kentridge, the South African artist who is a polymath himself, uh, does set design for operas, and he does miniature sculptures and gigantic sculptures, and murals and miniature drawings and, you know, um, so he's, uh, during the pandemic, when the pandemic broke out, he decided to shoot film, uh, about what happens in an artist's studio, but specifically his studio. What does he do and what does he think about what he does as he does it? And, um, It turned out to to be a nine-episode series, 30 minutes per episode, which we're just finishing now, uh, three years after having started it.
0: And you were talking, among many other things—remind me, by the way, before we uh, say goodbye to each other to tell you a very funny story about the word polymath. Um, I don't want to forget that. It'll be a little tease here. But you were talking about the creativity. We did something many years ago with Amy Tan and Matt Groening. We were talking about it before we started talking here, uh, which was about creativity and how random it can be and how yeah. it can just come, you know, doing the dishes or tying your shoelaces, yeah. something can just come emerge. Yeah,
1: and and Kentridge really explores exactly that. You know, he's, he says it's a, the studio is a place where uh, space, stupidity is given wings to turn into something wonderful. But if you're afraid of being stupid, you you will never be creative. That The early phases of any art uh, is something that an objective observer would look at and say, well, that's kind of stupid, especially something that's breaking new ground.
0: Well, you were also actually informed me during those conversations about something I didn't know that the Godfather, the first Godfather, was the long the first long film not to have an intermission. Yeah. and it, it prompted me to think about uh, well, think about Martin Scorsese's uh, the Irishman, which went on long enough uh, for those whose kidneys were <laughs> you know had to be attended to. It was a problem. But it made me think about the fact that Poe, for example, said that aesthetically, a short story is far superior to a novel because you can experience it in one gulp, so to speak, right. just one sitting. Same can be true about cinema, I guess. You know, you you do it without an interruption, maybe it makes a difference aesthetically?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, there's also the observation, I forget who made it first, that the, the short story is really the ideal platform on which to construct a screenplay. That novels, and Godfather is certainly that, uh, the danger is that they become unwieldy when you try to compress them down to the to the screenplay format. But that short stories, uh, because of that compression, because of that single gulp, uh, can uh, more easily accept the aeration that happens, the the externalization that goes on when you turn a story on the page into something that's going to be visualized uh, and that that exists in time. But, um, yeah, I I mean, this was a very specific thing that Bob Evans made that decision and it was a big risky thing for him because uh, intermissions is when theater owners make all their money selling popcorn, and if you have a long film, you sell less popcorn. Uh, but he, we, we were prepared to have the film be an intermission. The the intermission was going to happen right after Michael kills Salazzo and McCluskey, and. Uh, Sometime in the fall of 1971, I think it was, uh, Evans said, no, we're we." he said, we don't want to let the audience off the hook. That he felt that if there was an intermission, the tension of the Solazzo murder would be dissipated in tubs of popcorn and Diet Coke. Uh, and uh, he set that precedent, you know, he created the precedent, which now is to Films don't have intermission. No long film. And, and, and the, the Irishman is a really good example of that.
0: Also, since we're talking about the Salazzo mikulski murders by Al Pacino's character, Michael Corleone, that scene, memorably has all that sound underneath that you were responsible for, of the railways and uh, the rumbling sounds and so right. forth. Now, did that just come to you in that creative way out of the blue? Or how it, did it come? It
1: was the side effect of having the intermission uh, because Nino Rota, who wrote the music for The Godfather and Francis had decided to uh, that, that when Michael ran out of the restaurant, there would be a big operatic score that would deliver the audience as the lights came up and the intermission happened. And the, this this music would play uh, over the intermission and then it would welcome the audience back. Uh, but to do that, they also decided not to have any music in the restaurant scene at all. And yet that scene, maybe a third of it is in Italian with no subtitles, a very unusual uh, risky thing to do back then, even now. Um, and so Francis and I thought, well, the, it needs something. Let's come up with something. And I grew up maybe five miles away from where that restaurant is. And uh, I knew that that part of the Bronx had uh, all, all of the subway trains in Manhattan come up out of the ground in the Bronx. And so, wherever you are in in the South Bronx, you're not far away from an elevated train, which you not only hear the train sound but the resonance of the girders that support the elevated train. So I thought, why not? Even though nothing visually supports that. Um, and uh, we we recorded a, a we went to New York, or I asked somebody in New York to record. Uh, that sound, and and try to get especially one that had lots of screech in it for the the final uh, iteration of the sound,
0: and that's uh, that's how it that's how it happened. Well, let's talk about sound. I want to maybe get back to creativity, but I think the first music, film with sound was The jazz singer, 1927. Is that right? Well, there was sound before that,
1: uh, experimental sound, but uh, that that was certainly the first film uh with dialogue and music that uh made a big big impact in it man made a lot of money uh the other there there were technically sound films before that, but they were more experimental and they didn't make money they were just trying it out. So the jazz singer was important uh not because it was the first but because it was the first to make a lot of money.
0: Was Apocalypse now the first surround sound? That was your genius. No, no,
1: it? no. The Star Wars certainly has surround sound. The, the The technical breakthrough of of Apocalypse was that it had split surround, which meant that I or the we as we mixed the film, we could steer sound around the theater. Whereas if you have just what's called mono surround, you can only go from front to back. You can't do a three sixty. Um, and we also had a subsonic track that, that took the sound down into the frequencies where you no longer hear them with your ear, but you feel them with your, your gut.
0: But you're responsible for wordizing. Can you clarify mm, what Well, that is?
1: again there, it's, uh, other people had done it, notably Orson Welles. Um, the idea is that you take a clean recording of something, usually music, and you then broadcast that recording in a reverberant environment, in a gymnasium or an alleyway or a bathroom. Or, and each environment has a very definite fingerprint, an acoustic fingerprint. A bathroom sounds very different than uh, Shea Stadium. Um, so you, you rebroadcast that sound over a speaker and record it on a, yet another um, uh, uh, tape recorder and uh, in the final mix you would have i would have the choice to play either the the clean dry recording or this very echoey atmospheric reverberation or some blend of those things and orson wells did that in um touch of evil which you edited which uh, well i i worked on the 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 uh, the so-called director's cut of it, where where we were following Orson Welles's notes that had been ignored by the studio.
0: I saw it at Lucas French. In fact, yes. uh, when you debuted it and unveiled it and so yeah. forth, it was really astonishing. We got some questions coming in. Uh, lots of things I want to talk about, obviously, but let me see what people want to ask you. There's Peter in Houston, Texas, who says being involved in sound for such a wide range of time. What are some of the most impressive changes you've experienced, and are there future changes that you are excited about that have yet to arrive?
1: Um, well, the, when we worked on American Graffiti or The Godfather even, uh, the films in the late 60s or early 70s, technically when those films were shown in the theaters— there was no difference uh, in the delivery medium between that and Gone with the Wind, which was made 30 years earlier. They were all using what was called optical sound, and this was optical sound before Dolby came along to suppress the inevitable system noise that comes along with something like that, with an analog system like that. So uh, we we were young, and we were working... Uh, in the in the uh, in the mixing stages, we were working with with tape, uh, magnetic tape and magnetic film, um, which has a lower noise component to it. It still is noisy, but less so. Uh, and we always braced ourselves, like brace for impact, when we got the final optical track, because not only was the system noise higher, but the the Frequency response of the film dropped off uh, precipitously uh, at eight thousand cycles. Human hearing goes to twenty thousand, but for technical reasons, optical tracks. Uh, so it was like uh, like a piece of meat that you see in the supermarket that's all shrink wrapped. We we got uh, the the sound became shrink wrapped, um, and the. All of the changes that have happened since, the digitization of sound and the coming of Dolby, which straddled two eras, uh, is removing the shrink wrapping. So that you are, when you go to the theater now, you are exposed to technically unlimited frequency range, uh, at least in terms of human ability. And unlimited dynamic range, which is it, it, can get loud enough to damage your hearing. So we, as mixers, have to be very careful about those things. Now that the the handcuffs are off, so to speak.
0: And here's Stefan, uh, who says, "How much time do you need to cut one minute screen time of a big production?" That's a good uh, good question. It's
1: uh, I in in blink of an eye. I did the calculations for Apocalypse now, which is that if we had known where the film would wind up at the beginning we could have arrived there at the same pace by coming in in the morning making one one and a half making one cut from one shot to another thinking about the next one and going home and to come in the next day do the thing that we thought about and make another one so basically one and a half edits a day would have if we knew where we were going uh, would have gotten us to the end. Um, in the, uh, you know, it all depends on how much film gets shot. The Coup 53, the film that Michael mentioned at the beginning, we had 532 hours of material, um, which was well more than double what we had on Apocalypse Now. Um, so it, it can vary tremendously.
0: Coup 53, by the way, has been praised by just about every major filmmaker, from uh, Werner Herzog to uh, Michael Moore as documentary filmmaker, uh, but also, um, I mean, you know, I was just looking at the list here, uh, Errol Morris, uh, Oliver Stone, uh, you know, people love the film, and the distribution on it probably could have been greater, huh? Well,
1: uh, it, it could have been. We'd, we still don't have distribution for it. We're oh, my heavens.
0: I thought it had been distributed now, to some degree.
1: No, we're distributing it ourselves uh, through v- yeah. o- VOD and also convincing theaters uh, to take it on. We just sold out at the Roxy here in San Francisco, and it's now playing in L.A. at the Lemney theaters. Um, but it's, it's been a hard road, and I can only think that the resistance to it is it must, has to be political. because
0: wow, it's a very political film. <laughs> yeah. 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 What inspired you to do?
1: Uh, well, the, it, the inspiration was not me. It was Taghi Amirani, the director, who was a dual national British-Iranian. He grew up in Iran and then left to uh, go to school in England when he was 15, while the Shah was still in power. And um, he he grew up with the name Mossadegh, who was the prime minister of uh, the of Iran, who was deposed by the CIA and MI six. Um, uh, but it was all whispered because you weren't allowed to say the name. You weren't allowed to have the guy's picture uh, because he represented democracy, which the Shah was absolutely against. Uh, so he. Uh, He eventually decided to make the film um, when he saw—I think there was a big contested election in 2009 in Iran, and young people who were not even born after the Islamic Revolution were walking around with pictures of this guy, Mossadegh, and he thought, the time is now. So he started doing the prep work for that then, which is, you know, now he's been thinking about this film for— you know, fourteen years now.
0: I still haven't seen the revolution against the Khomeini regime and all that followed it. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. But here we are. And another question from the Midlands in the UK. Simon wants to know, and thank you for all these questions, by the way, can you briefly talk about the rule of six and how it influences where you choose to cut?
1: It's uh it you, you can read it in the blink of an eye, the book that I wrote, and uh it's it's uh it's it's really worth turning the whole rule up on its head, which says there's a priority of things that you should try to preserve at all costs and things that uh, in editing, you know, would be nice maybe, but you don't feel that you have to keep them. And so from the top working down, you, the the first thing is emotion which is the most difficult thing to define and the most difficult thing to achieve. Uh, but if you, if you have a scene that is getting an emotional pull to it, try to maintain that and enhance it at every possibility. Uh, then story, do the people understand what the story is? When you make that cut, does it help them understand where the story is going? And then on a musical terms, does the cut happen at a rhythmically interesting, appropriate place? You can think of the cut in a film as, in an analogy with jazz, is when exactly does the saxophone decide to blow? And he, the saxophone's listening to everybody else, and then at the exact right moment, the saxophone comes in. That's where, the in film terms, that's where the editor says, I'm going to now introduce this new shot at exactly the right point. And then three things which are less uh, critical than those things, which are, where is the audience looking at any point? And it's good to take that into consideration. Um, and then, does the cut observe does it look like the people in the film are looking at each other as they have their conversation? And then the last thing is, does the cut, uh, preserve the three dimensional continuity of the space in which the actors are. But my advice is rarely do you get to get all six of those lined up at the same time. So sacrifice from the bottom. Uh, if if, if, Three-dimensional continuity is hanging you up. Get rid of it. If the hundred and eighty-degree rule, if if the problem of actors looking at each other is give, hanging you up, get rid of that, and eventually uh, try to preserve the top three at all costs, and certainly try to preserve emotion.
0: And you still uh, want to preserve standing up while you're doing the cuts, too? Uh, yes,
1: uh, I would recommend it. Uh, I've been standing up for the last uh, fifty seven years, I guess, uh, that I've been doing this with a brief interval where I tried the the new machines that came in uh, to the United States in the late 60s, 70s, were the, the German editing tables, which were horizontal as opposed to the American classic Moviola, which is kind of a vertical machine. And uh, the, those editing desks from Europe encouraged you to sit at them, but um, I, I just found that intolerable and I, I began to develop what I called Steenbeck neck Steenbeck is the name for one of those machines because unlike the moviola where your whole body is in movement and your arms are flailing the film around um, with a editing table and also with digital you tend to sit and anything the only thing that's moving is your fingers and your wrist um, so I uh, I Put these editing tables up in the air on on plywood boxes, and when I made the switch to digital, I also uh, used an architect's table to stand.
0: She also wrote and performed in a movie about Moviola, which I want to talk to you about uh, yeah. before we go to more questions <laughs> here, because I know it's in the pipeline. uh Moviola kind of defined film editing for most of the century. Really, yeah. The
1: twenty twenty two is the hundredth anniversary of the Moviola. It uh, <clears throat> it uh, really began to get accepted in the middle of the 20s and when sound came in uh, with the jazz singer and stuff like that you had to have a machine that would play the picture in sync with a separate soundtrack and the Moviola was capable of doing that and so every classic hollywood film that you care to think of in the sound era certainly was edited on the Moviola.
0: But you got into this project of taking a movie of Mike Lee's yeah. and actually kind of recreating it? Well, uh,
1: we recreated a film editing room the way it would have been if you walked into uh, one of those rooms 50 years ago, so half a century ago, with a moviola and a rewind bench and a synchronizer and a bin, trim bin and all of the paraphernalia. And then, as you said, we we convinced Mike Lee uh, to give us the files from a film he shot digitally, Mr. Turner, and we reverse engineered two of those two scenes from that film and printed them up in 35 millimeter, uh, and transferred the sound to 35 millimeter soundtrack mag magnetic, and then uh, treated that 80 minutes uh, of material just the way we would have done 50 years ago. It it comes in from the lab. Now, what do you do? And my assistant and I were wired up with microphones and we gave a running golf commentary, so to speak, about everything that we were doing and why we were doing it. And the idea basically is if we didn't do this now, the equipment, which is hard enough to discover even now in five or 10 years, it would be very difficult to put that uh, editing room together, plus the number of people who know how to edit on a Moviola is shrinking by the day. I'm still alive and kicking, but you know, maybe not in ten or fifteen years. So the idea was get it,
0: uh, do it now while we can still do it. I think I, I interviewed Mike Lee many years ago. I think one of the funniest things in this whole experience you had was reading his response. Too much sailboat, he said. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I cut the film together, just using my own editing chops, thinking, well, uh, this is how it might go together. And then we screened my version of the film for Mike, and then we looked at the way his the way those two scenes were in the film, Mr. Turner, and his criticism of what I had done is, uh, you you used too much of the sailboat. And I said, well, you shot it. And he said. I didn't shoot it. The cameraman shot. It was just one of those extra shots that uh, a cameraman can shoot just because it's there.
0: I love some of his films. I, was, I really appreciated Secrets and Lies a great yes, deal. And, absolutely. And, and Naked. I was wondering, though, it brings up— you <clears throat> Think about Martin Scorsese and the remarks he's made about traditional type of stories in films uh, that don't take us into outer space or don't use Marvel characters or— aren't based on cartoons and so forth. Do you have any uh, sense of wisdom to offer on that? Um, Well, he's an old fogey. (laughs) Uh,
1: I respect him and uh, I, I'm an old fogey too. I mean, I, I have, I have seen a few of the Marvel films um, because my son-in-law is a cameraman on some of them. Um, But uh, they're, not my cup of tea and uh, certainly compared to marty who you know the the uh, the story goes that uh, you know in his apartment there are three films running on screens all day long <laughs> you know he just pickles himself in the pickle juice and in the vinegar of cinema uh and i don't i my interests go outside of cinema when i'm not working on a
0: film yeah, I mean I I've, I've let me just say this for those of you listening or will be listening in the future. I've heard Walter opining on um uh, all kinds of things including um Quantum mechanics, which the old saying was, the only people who really understand quantum mechanics are either madmen or uh, or geniuses. But I mean, you you know, you talk you're very comfortable talking about, and fluent talking about entropy or Niels Bohr's or you know whatever.
1: Well, I was lucky enough to edit a film, a wonderful film called Particle Fever, which uh, Mark Levinson directed um, about the the search for the Higgs boson at uh, CERN in Geneva.
0: I did a whole show on that back in the day. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, uh-huh. and so i mean i was already interested in in that i my my mode of relaxing at night is to read books on uh popular books on popular you know popularizations of science um and so i'm i'm fascinated in that whole uh world and so to actually help to make a film about it was uh, was fascinating
0: you could have been a scientist, probably. I, I
1: thought I was going to be a scientist. I, I went to university thinking I was going to be an oceanographer.
0: This is it Johns Hopkins? Yeah. yeah,
1: And uh, they told me, well, yes, uh, but it's a graduate program. You have to take a kind of pre-med in oceanography. And uh, so you you have to decide between geological oceanography and biological oceanography. And i would had some— uh, biology in high school, so I thought, well, geology. Let me learn about that, and uh, it it uh, the virus didn't take. Uh, I'm still interested in in geology, but you have to understand this was 1961, and it was before geology had admitted plate tectonics. So um, it was medieval then. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, not to put. Not to criticize it, but it was it was a little like stamp collecting. You know, here's a rock. What is it? Uh, whereas, if if plate tectonics had already been accepted, I think I would have maybe become a geologist because as soon as you have plate tectonics, things move around, and there's a story going on. You know, there's a past and a future, and it's dynamic.
0: Here's Thomas, uh, who is in Saint Paul, Minnesota. Thank you for the question, Thomas. You want to know. He wants to know what was your entry into sound capture and was there a magic moment that made you decide working in film is what I'm going to do for a career and not be a geologist? Yeah, Yeah.
1: My my nickname when I was four was Walter McBoing-Boing. I remember uh, Gerald McBoing-Boing. Because of the cartoon character Gerald McBoing-Boing who spoke in sound effects. And... um, may for some reason, maybe because my ears stuck out, I was already sensitized to sound. And I didn't respect the limits of language. So if I didn't know the word for something, I would make the sound that it would make. And my friends uh, found this very amusing. And they would ask me to make sounds. So probably, you know, it was inherent from the beginning, I think.
0: Can you still make some of those sounds? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh but you know, it's uh I I I was lucky enough also to be ten when the tape recorder started being introduced into the culture. It became an affordable thing that ordinary people could could use in 1952, 53. And I just I found a friend whose father had one and I just fell in love with the act of tape recording, which you also have to remember, um this is before any instant uh, uh, photography. Well, maybe maybe there was Polaroid, but you know, and by and large, you took a picture and you sent it to the drugstore and you got it back three days later. But the thing about the tape recorder is you, you r- recorded something, you captured some aspect of reality, and then you could immediately play it back. And that was fascinating, al- along with already my interest in sound. So, so, where
0: was the entree to editing? Uh, well,
1: uh, through sound, because I as a as a eleven year old, you you're very curious and you like to make model airplanes. and I discovered on my own that once you recorded something on tape, you could cut that tape and you could rearrange the pieces of tape and then scotch tape them all together and make something uh, make a little symphony of sound effects that wasn't the way that it was recorded. So I, I kind of discovered editing on my own, and it's it's a very short step from editing sound to editing
0: picture. Just a quick cliché came to mind that, you know, you have two editors, you have two totally different views, and editing in itself can be almost an infinite process. I mean, sometimes you have to kind of put the governor on, don't you, and say— I've gone enough with this. Yeah, um, I mean it was
1: fascinating. The movieola project for exactly that reason. That here I I had edited these two scenes without reference to what Mike Lee had done, and then we screened what Mike Lee and his editor had done, and they were actually pretty similar. Except I used too much uh, too much of the sailboat, um, and there you know there were also some minor things. But uh, basically, uh, I I didn't make Uh, a completely different film out of the material the material speaks in a certain way and when you want to use it to tell a story pretty much editors will wind up doing the same
0: thing question from peter in houston texas thank you for the question peter can you talk about the process of working with directors and producers to achieve their desires what challenges there are and any techniques that, uh, well, that really can help to arrive at the best yeah. possible results.
1: Yeah, it, it's uh, something that uh, in order to survive in the business end of filmmaking, you have to, uh, and not doesn't only apply to editing, but you, you have to very quickly figure out what kind of person a director is and how engaged they want to be in your particular craft. Um, and uh, modulate your activity to correspond to that. Uh, Because you're in harness. It's like a a sack race, you know, where each of you're you're together but separate but tied together, both of you trying to make the film um, uh, the best that it can be.
0: So you got to work like a team, don't you?
1: Absolutely. Uh, But having said that, some directors, uh, and Francis Coppola is a bit this way, they like to see the results, and then discuss it, and then they like to go away, and leave you on your own, um, and not only leave you on your own to do the notes that were discussed, but also he, Francis would say, if you if you discover something really interesting, go with that, you know, surprise me. Um, different from somebody like Catherine Bigelow, who. Was in the editing room every day. Uh, she uh, installed herself when we were making K19, uh, the submarine film. She would come in, sit on the sofa, and she was there from you know nine o'clock to six o'clock at ni- at night.
0: So it's different styles of management. Which do you prefer? Uh, I prefer
1: the Francis, but right. you know so, I, yeah. I adapted to to Catherine, and I, I gave her her own monitor. Uh, so that she could be on the sofa and look at her monitor to see what it was that I was doing. She didn't have to get up and peer over my shoulder. And, uh, you know, we would we would play with it. She would say, that's good, that's good. And I said, Catherine, I'm not done yet. <laughs> uh, also, she would leave at 6 o'clock, and that meant that I had another couple of hours where I could work on my own and develop some ideas. And then when she came in the next day, I would say, Catherine, uh, overnight, some mice came in and nibbled away at the film. Do you want to see the damage? <laughs> and uh, in general, she liked uh, what I did. So that you know, we we developed our own uh, method.
0: It's a quick sidebar question, but you know, she was a major breakthrough as far as women directing. And mm-hmm. are they really embraced now in the way they should be? Are they have they become equal footing with male directors? They
1: they are not. Equal, uh, just if you look at the numbers, certainly the numbers are
0: disproportionately men still. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, you know it's. Uh, it, I I make a a slight joke, but it there's a truth to it, which is that um, the director, whatever whoever the director is, uh, is like in the old days, uh, the Cro Magnon days, the the hunters go out to see what kind of meat they can find out there in the forest, the jungle. And they come back with whatever it is that they found. Um, And it's the women who then take that meat and make something delicious out of it. And that's the relationship between the director and the editor, that the director, whether it's male or female, is the hunter that brings back the raw material but then the women which is to say me I'm uh, sitting over my boiling kettles uh, take that meat and try to make something really uh, delicious out of it even if they haven't been successful in getting mastodon steaks and they came back with mouse steaks I'm thinking well you can you can cook a mouse
0: up <laughs> that's the second metaphor using meat and the second one using mice I think we've got yeah, something here absolutely <laughs> <laughs> there's uh Daniel from Thousand Oaks, thank you for the question. How have the sound design tools at your disposal influenced your creativity over the years? Well, uh, it went from one
1: extreme to the other, which is that uh, you would be lucky to be able to have two tracks going simultaneously when you're editing a film back in the, the day, the analog days of 40 or 50 years ago. So, you had to uh, be very creative with those two tracks. One of them would be dialogue, and the other one might be music or sound effects, uh, or maybe some supplementary dialogue. But you had to imagine everything else because it was just no way to cope with it. Uh, now, it's completely the opposite. You know you you with any of these editing programs, you have infinite or virtually infinite uh, number of tracks you can go crazy. You can you can produce too much sound. Um, so you have to find uh, the path either by overcoming restrictions or overcoming abundance.
0: Another question comes to us from uh, Robert in Houston, Texas, who wants to know, what is your current favorite video editing application?
1: Uh, I'm using uh, Adobe's Premiere at the moment. Um, I started out uh in the digital world, I started out uh, on Avid, uh, and then I switched to Apple's Final Cut. And then I, I kind of bounced back and forth between those two systems. And then just, just on Coup 53, which uh, we started editing in 2015, I uh, went to uh, Adobe Premiere. I'm also looking at... Uh, DaVinci Resolve, which uh, the advantage of that is it's a very good program and it's free, um, whereas Adobe Premiere you have to pay for.
0: And Ed from Washington, D.C. wants to know, given the changes in audio technology over the years, what is your opinion regarding updating past productions? Should seminal works of art be tweaked for today's (laughs) audiences or should they be left as originally delivered? Uh, good,
1: good question. Very pertinent right now because this afternoon I'm going up to Skywalker Sound uh, and making a 5.1 version of American Graffiti, which is being re-released for the 50th anniversary. Uh, it came out in 1973, and here we are in 2023. So we're 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 being respectful of what we did in mono. Um, But we are taking advantage of the spatial uh, and the frequency range that you can get with uh, 5.1.
0: And Roscoe from Madison, Indiana asks, have you ever made major changes to a sound design after you saw all the footage? Hmm. Um... No, uh, in the,
1: in the sense that the, it would be. Do you, did I? W- re, I'm, I'm thinking that the question really should be: Did you ever make big changes once we had done <clears throat> the final mix of a film, uh, and then looked at it and said, "This is totally wrong"? And I, I haven't done that. It, it's uh, pretty much you. You have to have a plan, and you have to be. Flexible and fluid within that plan, um, but as you get closer and closer to the final result, uh, you 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 get closer to it. I will say one uh, uh, big uh, uh, change uh, that that uh, I experienced was uh, the mix of Godfather Two, which we did up here in San Francisco in mono. This is before Dolby, before stereo, before any of that. And being young, uh I tried to uh, and did apply a dynamic range to that film that was the equivalent of uh what I had done on on American graffiti, which I I, I had made the louder sounds louder. Um and for some reason what had worked with graffiti didn't work for uh, godfather 2 and the film was sent out into the world uh, in uh, december of uh, 1974 and immediately the theaters started saying there's too much dynamic range our our equipment can't handle it Mm. and so we had to take the film back and reduce the dynamic range uh, boost the low-level sounds and slightly uh, diminish the high-level sounds and that was, that was a very painful experience for me.
0: Sounds painful. Yeah. In fact, when you say you should have a plan, how much of a detailed map do you actually have? Uh,
1: pretty pretty much. Uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a map that uh, has enough detail in it so that uh, I can afford to get lost in the smaller details. But that if I ever get uh, upriver without a paddle, I know how to get back to civilization, so to speak. <laughs> if you have no map at all and you, you films are so can be so overwhelming that if you get into trouble you may uh, expire in the process uh, so some idea of what you're trying to achieve is is a good idea
0: what are you doing now with this uh we'll get to some more questions in just a moment but i'm interested in this uh, gorky project of yours with the f- first moving picture and uh, again the film historian in you the lumiere uh brothers back in the end of the 19th century right. yeah um i mean we're talking about suddenly something clicking right. i mean that's that's all in the title it's all embedded <laughs> in the title uh and the click turns out to be the splice right
1: this is uh, this is i'm i'm writing a, another book uh kind of a supplement to in the blink of an eye which i wrote 30 plus years ago um and uh, what, what uh, Michael is referring to is the, the, the projection of the Lumiere brothers' motion pictures for the first time in Russia, in the city of uh, what was then called Nizhny Novgorod, uh, which is uh, 100 kilometers or so east of uh, Moscow. And um, they they came into town like a traveling circus and the only place that would accommodate them was the local brothel which had a central salon uh, that could accommodate uh, a bunch of uh, an audience and they hung up a bedsheet at one end of the room from the brothel and they put their projection equipment at the other end of the room and sitting in the audience was the author the author Maxim Gorky who was then a 27-year-old uh, reporter for the local newspaper. And uh, he was there to report on motion pictures. And the uh, uh, the light ignited, and he saw a still frame of a, of a street scene in Lyon. And he said, I'm not impressed. I've seen this many times. And then it flickered to life. And paradoxically, he got immediately depressed because it was lifelike, but he said, "Where's the color and where's the sound this is this is like looking at a shrunken mummy of existence um, so uh, this this uh, was was he was dealing with this issue and then uh, and then he wrote suddenly something clicked, and the street scene in Lyon disappeared, and suddenly you were looking at a locomotive heading straight for the camera, which is the famous uh." the arrival of the train at Ciotat, one of the other early, early Lumiere brothers' film clips. And he made the classic joke about, look out, get out of the way or the train will crush you. Uh, But what he was referring to with that click was the splice of one shot cutting to another. And in those days, what you had to do was actually glue two pieces of film together using a dissolved cement It was called a cement splice. And that extra thickness, when it went through the projector, made a click. So there was a great uh, author, Maxim Gorky, the first person to ever comment on the cut from one shot to another.
0: And this is a great preview of your forthcoming book, which we'll look forward to. Uh, Also makes me think of Spielberg's new movie, The Fablements, where the locomotive comes into the picture in terms of his filmmaking. That's really... a Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Well, there's, of
1: there's something very similar uh, between classic film and trains uh, in the sense that a 35-millimeter film is like a train track with the, and the sprockets of the rails and the image is the train that's traveling on it. And if you've ever been near a 35-millimeter projector, it has that same kind of locomotive clickety-clickety-clickety-click quality to it.
0: So trains and 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 film have a have a coexistence. Coming to my mind is Whitman's line about locomotives and trains, symbol of the modern. Yeah, that's really what it is. Yeah. And here's Robert from Los Angeles. Does any new technologies on the horizon that you think will make your work more impactful and productive?
1: uh ai probably yeah, uh, i don't i don't know exactly how but uh that's certainly it it's already present i've you been know?
0: wanting to talk to you about ai yeah. so let's do that yeah. uh, i mean uh this we we're talking at a time when a letter just went out really expressing concern and anxiety about the perils and the darker side and all that and we have gates just talking recently about all the good side but there are dangers and so forth yeah we're hearing you know Comparable to what we heard for years about the internet, there are good sides and bad sides. Right. But there is a lot of fear, a lot of peril, and
1: yeah. And uh, it, it's interesting that a lot of the people who express the fear are the people who are developing
0: themselves. It's exactly right. I mean, we're on the we're simply on the frontier of something. We don't even know where this is going to go. We can't get a periscope here and psych yeah. it out.
1: I mean, I think it's uh, you know that it's it's the the fear comes. I think from the fact that, um, that they they don't yet know—I'm uh, trying to think of the phrase they use, but it's it overspill, the, that the, the AI has qualities in it that are more advanced than even they know. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And that's what they're afraid of. And what they're really afraid of is putting that overabundance, which is yet unknown, into the Hands of ordinary human beings, which it, it, it you know, it's like giving a, a, a flame gun into a to a four year old. You know what what are you going to do with that? It's a powerful thing, but uh, it it can cut both ways.
0: Well, he want to know how you see this operating in terms of the work that you're going to be doing, or
1: well i mean? I
0: was involved
1: uh, a number of years ago, maybe a decade ago, at least,
0: with Google,
1: and they they wanted me to come in and to show me something that they were working, which was an AI editing program, film editing program. And it would take uh, at this stage, they were just experimenting with home movies. It would take a home movie, analyze it using AI, and then uh, cut together uh, that home movie in a way that made some sense. And you, the person who is uh, asking this to be done, could specify whether you wanted this to be done in the style of film noir or in the style of uh, beach blanket uh, Babylon or in the style of a silent film. Um And then it would crunch the numbers and come up with something and say, okay, here's your home movie in a film noir style. And you can now look at this and say, hey, that's great. Or you can say, yeah, it's good, except the shot of Aunt Gladys isn't long enough. And you could make little changes in it. But uh, I asked them, why were they doing this? And ironically, the code name for this program was Zoetrope, which was the company (laughs) that Lucas and Francis... uh, uh, Francis and I started in San Francisco back in. The, also,
0: the name of a magazine now that Francis still yes, publishes. Yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. It just means wheel of life, zoetrope. Uh, um, but uh, they said, well, people shoot home movies on their digital digital cameras, and they say, I'll get around to putting it together someday, but someday never happens, and you, they go on another vacation, and the stuff piles up. And nobody can take the time to actually sit down and edit it. So what these programs were trying to do was to get people over the hump. Say, uh, okay, take our Caribbean vacation and put it together some way and let me look at it. Maybe it'll be fine. So, I mean, now you can see all of these things. These have proliferated now. But uh, it's it's conceivable that with some sophistication, some version of that will happen on a professional level.
0: Well, it's brave new world, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, how are you doing on time? Fine. Uh, I've got lots of questions for you. Uh, can you hang a little bit? Yeah. yeah. Um, I promised a story about the word polymath. I'll get to that before we say goodbye. But here's Thomas in St. Paul. He says, have you been playing with AI? If so, could you share your thoughts? Uh, and concerns? I,
1: I, only to the extent that i uh i ask questions of chat gpt uh <clears throat> the the current version not uh gpt 4 uh, that costs money and i haven't decided to spend money on it yet but i, I it, you know i'm i have little dialogues with it and it uh, and, uh i'm not saying anything that people haven't said before but uh, it it has uh, the quality of a really intelligent, self-confident junior in high school um, who makes uh, blatant mistakes without acknowledging the uncertainty of what they have just said. They say, it, it will say things with absolute confidence, uh, like a junior in high school who is has full of himself w- would do. and. Uh, I I my next response is you're wrong that doesn't that's not correct at all and then it will say oh yeah thank you i i really i'm sorry i made a mistake there um so that that's uh it it's you know I, I i can see some role in i mean educators are are panicked about this because will students write their own essays but if you set a challenge to the student, which is ask the AI the to talk about, to write about some subject, and then you, the student, have to identify where AI is wrong. So you have to do your own supplementary research using Google or whatever, uh, and you know, check the math and check the history that that this uh, AI is pretending is the answer. And then challenge the AI and say, you're wrong. It, uh, you know, the the Egyptian pyramids were not built 6,000 years ago. They were built uh, 4,000 years, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: It's a nice supplement. But as yeah. an, a long-time educator, it really does give me some serious apprehensions. And yeah. the, the other side of apprehension has to do with, uh, at least in my mind, how science fiction has been in some ways predictive through the years and you have these terminator type films and everything yeah. i mean they're metaphorical in that sense yeah. but you know it's it's a if it's a junior in high school the teenage brain isn't fully developed and i don't know what's capable of doing yeah. we don't we have no yeah. idea really do we yeah. no nope. nope. well a question from daniel in uh southern california of all the accolades and nominations you've received during your career which holds the most meaning to you and why mm. um it, as i said earlier i i
1: i've Feel better when I don't win. Uh, when I, when something is nominated, maybe that's that's nice. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I, I, you know, looking kind of dispassionately at it, I, I would have to say Apocalypse because, you know, I was both a film editor and a sound designer on the film, so I had two different hats on it, and it it was a challenge to put that film together because of the circumstances under which it was shot and also just culturally what the United States was going through at that time during the Vietnam war. Um, so the fact that the film guy actually got finished and then it, uh, you know, it won the Oscar for best sound. Um, it was nominated for editing, but did not win uh, that. Um <clears throat> But, uh, you know on a certain level, I look at my life pre apocalypse post apocalypse.
0: There's a probably a good metaphor to end with yeah. <laughs> looking at all of our lives, but I did want to tell this quick story because I thought it was amusing when uh I was thinking about polymaths, and uh, I said, at the beginning, Walter is definitely a polymath, and uh I am definitely not a polymath, but um, there was an article in um San Francisco Magazine. Uh, I was at the San Francisco International Film Festival. In fact, with the uh, there's a photograph of me with the actor Ed Harris, who I'm sure you know, we're wearing tuxedos, and it says uh, film actor Ed Harris and radio polymath Michael Krasny. <laughs> so I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, I'm with some old friends of mine, and one of them was kind of a gangster figure who you know, was sort of small-time Tony Soprano or something. And I I see the magazine on the rack in Cleveland. I say, hey, look at this. You know? He looks at this and he reads it and he says, yeah, so? <laughs> I said, well, what does it say? It says, it "says actor, Ed Harris and radio polymath, Michael Krasny. I said, do you know Ed Harris? He said, no, I don't know Ed Harris. I said, do you know what a polymath is? He said, yeah, I know what a polymath is. I said, what's a polymath? He says, oh, bike and bike. That's what it is. <laughs> anyway, always a pleasure to... Be with you, You talk to you, You and I am a great admirer and uh, maintain that admiration for many, many good reasons aside from your wonderful work that you've done. Um, So thanks for being part uh, of…
1: Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me.
0: And again, thanks to all of you as we come to the close of this live podcast episode of Grey Matter with Michael Krasny. To all who heard us live and to all of you who will hear this episode in the future. We invite you, if you have not already done so, to join our growing community of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny podcast, listeners by becoming a member, and simply go to graymatter.show. Thanks to the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. I call it the A-team, actually A-plus team. I never gave many grades with A-plus on them. i maybe one or two through the years of teaching, but it's an extraordinary team. Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Malachi, and special thanks to our special guests for this, our 31st episode, Walter Merch. and I'm Michael Krasny.
1: Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.